Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here today. Uh, thank you for those of you who came to the 1010 service, and for those of you who came to the 1030 service, welcome. <laughs> yeah, this is, I love this time of year. If this is your first time here at Connection, we really want you to know that we, we exist for you. So I'm glad you're here. I would love to meet you after the services. I'll hang out in the foyer or somewhere in here. Just come up and introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about where you came from. And, and uh, we got a gift for you on your way out. You can grab it at either of the welcome kiosks. And I hope that you have something today that's just genuine and real and experience of God and maybe meet some great friends or future friends. So just glad you came. If you want to talk about epically beautiful places on this planet, you have to add Mount Everest to the list. Anybody been there? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's people who've climbed up Mount Everest say that because it's the, literally the highest place you can still be standing on the planet uh, up in the sky. People who ascend 29,029 feet say you are so high up there, you're literally at the altitude that commercial jet airliners fly. When you stand on the top of Everest, people who've been there say it's as though you can feel the rotation of the earth in space. That's just how high up you are. It's just a beautiful place. It's rugged. There's a couple of things you need to know if you're planning on going. I would like to say I'd like to go. My wife gets really mad at me every time I say I'd like to climb Everest. Like it's ever going to happen, but you need to know for one thing, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time to get to the top. It takes a lot of money. That's why a lot of people don't do it. The other thing you need to know is this is probably one of the most dangerous things you could ever do would be to climb Mount Everest. It, is, it just like, seems like there's endless options to kick the bucket when you go up Everest. Think about it. It's, first of all, almost zero oxygen when you get to the top, so you are slowly suffocating to death when you're up there. That's nice. You could obviously freeze to death. You could have, fall into a crevasse and fall thousands and thousands of feet before you hit anything. That's something to look forward to. Um, you could have boulders fall on top of you. Just so many ways that make this just epically dangerous to go up there. Yet, and here's the other thing too. People die every single year climbing Everest. I was just listening to the news a week or so ago. Two more people died climbing Everest this year. I don't know if you saw that or not. And people still go though. This is a creepy but true fact. There are still over 200 bodies on Everest. They're too high up to recover. Uh, it'd take a lot of money. it put a lot of people in danger. They just leave the bodies where they are. They don't decay because there's no bacteria that high. There's no oxidation. So there was a guy who died in 1922, I think. Mallory, they found his body a few years ago. Just looks like he's laying there taking a nap. He's been dead like 100 years. It's just, that's what it is. And there's like these hundreds of bodies. Um, don't do this now. Aaron said you're on your phone during church. I don't believe him. I think he was wrong with but if you were to Google bodies on Everest, you can see all the pictures you want. Don't do it now. Wait till after, you, wait till after lunch. So just do that, okay? One case in particular, there's a guy who died in 1996. He was an Indian climber. He has a name. I just can't pronounce it. He died, and uh, his body is still up there. Everybody calls him Green Boots because he's literally on the trail, and he died wearing green boots, so he's still there. There are, there are not this guy, but there are situations where you literally step over a body on your climb to the top, Green Boots died in a little sheltered cave off to the side of the trail. He um, got separated from his party, had to spend the night in the cave, and he just slowly froze to death. And another guy who was hiking up got caught in a storm. He spent the night in the cave next to Green Boots. And here's, this is, a, this is macabre, but people do it. This, the bodies are markers and landmarks to know how far along the trail you are. So when you get to Green Boots, you know, oh, I'm pretty close to the summit. And it's you know, out of respect for the family, I'm not showing you a picture, but they exist. Everybody knows that Everest is just an incredibly dangerous place. And my question would be, even as much as I love it and the challenge of it pulls something inside me, and maybe it, maybe it does for you too, 
My question is, why do people continue to go there? Considering the chances of you dying are so high, why do people go there? I have another question for us to consider. Just to think about what sin does to a person's life. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. We've watched people derail themselves completely through sin. Knowing how deadly and dangerous it is, why do we continue to go there? Why do we continue to do self-destructive things? That's what this series, Still Deadly, is going to be about. What we're going to do is we're going to take several weeks to go through what are known as the seven deadly sins. Have you heard about that? Some of you are old enough to remember a Brad Pitt movie about It's not going to get creepy like that. It's, uh, you, by the way, too, you will not find a list of the seven deadly sins in the Bible. All seven are in the Bible, but there's not like one verse that says, these are the seven worst sins. It's different people have made lists of all of those different kinds of ways that are the, seem like the chief ways that people destroy their life and their faith, and they've come up with these lists, and what we're going to do is just walk through them and say, what are some things that we want to avoid if you're a, certainly if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to honor God with your life, this is something that you would care about and want to know about. Even if you are not yet a Christian and you're here just thinking about it, first, you're, you're welcome here. We'd love for every week there to be people here who are not Christians. But even then, it would just be wise to avoid these things considering the impact that they have on people's life. Just consider these seven sins that we go through like cautionary tales or a word to the wise. And if you're thinking like, okay, now I need to have something to do for the next six weeks because I don't want to hear this. It's just way too negative. It's not going to be a dark, negative, condemning kind of experience at all. We're going to look at the sins just so we know what to avoid, but we're also going to look at the positive side of it too. There's an alternating virtue that corresponds to every sin that you can embrace in your life. And I don't want to just give you things that are mental to just go, okay, I know these sins and I know the virtue. I want to give you something very practical every week to move from this column to this column. If this sin is something that you deal with, because we all deal with sin in one way or another, what are some things that I can very practically do to move me towards the virtue that I want to embrace? So I hope that you find this really helpful. I hope that you'll invite some people to come. I guarantee you it's going to be interesting as we get into some of these. Today, we're going to just go ahead and look at the deadliest of all the sins. It's a sin that everybody deals with. We're going to talk about pride and you're all too proud to admit that this is a problem for you, but we are going to talk about this. And I've always wondered about pride, and maybe you have too, because at least in the English language, isn't pride often seen as a good thing? Like, isn't it a good thing to take pride in your work or to be proud of your kids, or, right? So how can it be a bad thing? And uh, so if you say, well, if pride is taking satisfaction in my work, I want that. Why is that a sin? If pride is, you know, having great joy when your people that you love, your children, your grandchildren, your parents, when they accomplish something good, why is that wrong? Am I missing something here? It's a great question, and I've wondered about that myself. In that sense that I've just described it, pride is good. It's like we're using the same word for two different things. When we talk about the sin of pride, we're taking a good thing that has been boosted and amplified and taken way too far. It's a good thing that is just too much of something. It morphs into something harmful. Here's what the Bible says. And if you've got one of those little worship folders when you came in, you can write this down. Pride becomes a problem when it leads God out of the picture. I don't think there's a place to write that in there. You can just write that down. That's when pride becomes a problem. You know, like, I'm happy for you or I'm proud of my accomplishments becomes a problem when I just don't have God in the perspective of this. Uh, It fails to recognize that God is great and God is to be praised and God is ultimately the reason why I can do anything. When you forget that, you've started the seeds of pride and you've forgotten about the grace and goodness of God that enables everything that you and I do. I like how Pastor Brian Wilkerson describes it. This is, this is such a vivid image. Pride pushes God off the podium. 
Say, God is here. And I go, okay, God, thank you very much. Now, look at me. You want, let me tell you about how wonderful I am and all that I've accomplished and what I'm going to do. And it pushes God out of the way. And when we do that, just think about what happens. I'm starting to tell you about my accomplishments, my hard work, my good looks, my intelligence, my talent, my persistence. It's all about me. A little bit more of me here, please. And we make ourselves the source of everything good instead of God. I'm the reason that I've done all of this, which is very quickly, if you've pushed God off the podium, it puts me at the center of my own little world. And it makes you very obnoxious, honestly, to everybody around you, but you can't see it. It's very hard to see this in the mirror. And it also means that for a lot of people, this is the first step away from God. Because you start thinking about yourself and you stop thinking about what he's done. Again, Brian Wilkerson says, the deadly sin of pride is an unholy obsession with yourself. It's not that you shouldn't be concerned about yourself. It's just you're way too concerned with yourself, which is why pride appears at the top of the list, the deadliest list. Pride is why Satan fell. More about himself than God. I think pride is the thing that you and I need to think about because it ultimately is what separates us from God. And every other evil in the world starts because we got separated from God. So we need to think about this. Just to be very honest with you, and you could probably put yourself in this situation, but I know for me, when pride has its way with my life, I end up exalting myself, serving myself, contemplating myself, trusting myself to figure out whatever it is around me instead of trusting God and contemplating God and wondering what God wants, right? So here's just, there's like a, a progression here. And I don't do this often, but I did alliterate here just to kind of help us see what... So here, like, pride positions me to be superior to other people. Maybe even makes me think that I'm better than God. Pride puffs us up with arrogance. And then you think about what that leads to. You're rude to the people around you. You're unkind in what you say because it's really about me and you all exist to serve me. Pride promises me that I am infallible, that I'm incorruptible, that I'm incapable of failing. It has to be you that's wrong because it can't be me. Pride propels me into unwise decisions, inadvisable situations. Oh, I can handle that. Pride prohibits me from seeking outside assistance or asking for input or help or direction. Pride prevents me from admitting it when I am wrong, and I even know it. How long have you been into an argument when you realize you were wrong, but you just kept arguing? Right? Pride's pathway ultimately leads me to a fall into a destruction of what I value the most. And as I said, pride and arrogance, so much easier to see in other people. You ever heard somebody go, oh, that, they're just so full of themselves, and everyone around you is going, well, so are you. That's the pot calling the kettle black. It's easier to see in someone else than it is to see in the mirror, which is why I hope you have trusted friends in your life who will call you on it when you start getting puffed up and arrogant. I want to go ahead and take you to a true story that's in the Bible today because I want to hold this up as a mirror to all of us so that we can just all go, all right, I see what it did in his life and maybe I can ask God to start showing me how maybe this is playing out in my life. So if you have one of these analog versions of the Bible, you go to the Old Testament, the Second Chronicles. It's pretty easy to find because it's close to the beginning. If you've got the smartphone Bible app, like Aaron said, you got it. Just type in second or number two, C-H-R-O-N, and you'll, it'll pull up pretty quick. We're going to look at a true story. Historical guy, a great guy, and uh, pride derailed his life in a big way. So I'm going to 2 Chronicles. I'm actually going to read this out of the New Living Translation. 
And I'm going to set the stage just to give you an introduction to who this guy is. This is starting down in chapter 26, verse 3. It says, Uzziah, this is the guy we're going to talk about, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother was Jechaliah from Jerusalem. And I'm going to pause there because I want you to know that when a king's mom is mentioned, that's either really good or really bad. And in this situation, it's really good. His mom was a really good mom. And it says, Uzziah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his father, his dad Amaziah, had done. So he has a good mom, a good dad. Uzziah sought God during the days of Zechariah, who taught him to fear God. So he's also got this godly mentor in his life. And as long as the king sought guidance from the Lord, God gave him success. And that is the truth. We're not going to keep reading the verses, but if you look in Kings and you keep, just keep reading here in Chronicles, you'll find that Uzziah was one of the best kings Israel ever had, or Judah. Uh, he was just amazing. He was the kind of leader that we would just pray to have in the United States. He did all kinds of wonderful things for the economy. He developed all kinds of business and farming things. There was a lot of prosperity. There was a lot of peace. He was a good warrior, a good military leader. Just everything you would say, I would like that in a leader, Uzziah was. They were so blessed as a country to have this guy as king. And you just think about that. What were you doing when you're 16? Like, you're looking forward to get your license, right? He becomes king of an entire nation. And he did a good job. So there's something going right there. And he's got good people around him, and he's obviously listening to his mom. He paid attention when his dad was king before his dad died. He's got this guy, Zechariah, who is a godly mentor to him. But that was the problem. As good as things were, it started going to King Uzziah's head, and he started reflecting about how wonderful a job he was doing, and it made him puffed up with arrogance and pride, and this is where it started going badly for him. Look down at verse 16, 2 Chronicles 26, 16. But when Uzziah had become powerful, he also became proud, which led to his downfall. He sinned against the Lord his God by entering the sanctuary of the Lord's temple and personally burning incense on the incense altar. Now pause there because this may not mean anything to you. In the temple in Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Judah, the temple there, only the priests would go inside the temple to offer the incense as the, for the time of prayer. Uzziah thinks, I'm king, I should be able to do whatever I want. He just walks right into the temple, through the courtyard, right into the area inside the temple where he is absolutely not allowed to go. This is what pride does to you. It tells you, well, I can do whatever I want. Now it looks into what happened then. So Azariah the high priest went in after him with 80 other priests of the Lord. Just picture this, 81 men are following the king in, all brave men. Why are they brave? Do you dare contradict a king without feeling a little trepidation in your belly? He's king. He has the power to execute you. These were incredibly brave men because they're going, he's king, but this is unacceptable. They followed him in, and uh, they confronted King Uzziah and said, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. This is the work of the priests alone, the descendants of Aaron who are set apart for this work. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have sinned. The Lord God will not honor you for this. So brave. And the king's just all puffed up, and he just starts getting this attitude. Who do you think you are? Do you not know that I am the king? I'm the boss of you. Uzziah, picture this. He's in there. He's still holding an incense burner. Became furious. Veins are sticking out on his neck. His eyes are bulging out. He's turning red in the face. He's yelling at them. But as he was standing there raging at the priests before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, just picture that. They're in church having a knockdown drag out brawl. That's wonderful. And here they go. And then this is, this is one of the 
sharpest contrasts in the Bible. He's standing there screaming, and all of a sudden it says, leprosy suddenly sprung out on his forehead. One of the worst diseases you can imagine. And he's standing there yelling, leprosy, can he see it? No. But are there 81 men who can see it? Oh, yeah. They probably turned white. First, like, this is obvious judgment from God, and it's leprosy. It's like Ebola. We got to do something. So when Azariah the high priest and all the other priests saw the leprosy, they rushed him out. This is funny, not ha-ha funny, but, and the king himself was eager to get out <laughs> because the Lord had struck him. And so King Uzziah had leprosy till the day he died. He lived in isolation in a separate house, for he was excluded from the temple of the Lord. His son Jotham was put in charge of the royal palace, and he governed the people of the land. What a huge reversal for a guy who had such promise. He had everything going for him, and he was so sharp, and he really could have done things for the rest of his life that would have continued to put him in the favor of the people and of God, and it just could have ended so much differently. But he came so full of himself from his success that it completely derailed him. Uzziah probably should have spent a little more time reading his Bible. He should have found something that his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, King Solomon, had written, which was around in the collection of the Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 18. Go ahead and look at the screen. Pride goes before what? Destruction. Haughtiness before a fall. We get that expression, pride goes before a fall, from this account right here and from Solomon's proverb. Uzziah, man, what a great guy. True story, real person, derailed. Did God still love him? Absolutely. Did he have consequences for the rest of his life because of his pride? Absolutely. And he never recovered from it. And I don't know about you, but I can't stand up here and be arrogant and judgmental and just looking like, that guy's a joke. Yeah, I would have done better. How many of us can say that we've never been guilty of doing things out of arrogance and pride? I just can't say it. I mean, I've been guilty of being boastful and of pushing God out of the way and taking credit for stuff that I really shouldn't take credit for. I'm sure that you could say the same thing if you're being honest. I think there's probably times that, you know, you could say, yeah, I probably waited too long to ask for help. I waited too long to admit I was wrong. I waited too long to say I was in over my head. Maybe you've experienced a fall or two that started with pride. I was, um, I was fascinated, and I'm just looking at the men in the room right now. I was just a little bit convicted by something I read a few weeks ago. There's a new a study that was released this year. It says, here we go, men consistently overestimate their own intelligence. Men consistently overestimate their own intelligence. Ladies, you have anything to say about that? Yeah, you guys are so smart. You just don't, you just kind of let it go. The study was done in the context of college STEM classes. Was that science, technology, engineering, and math? Is that right? So they, they went into these classes, and they went to the male students, and they just asked them to rate their own performance in these classes, to evaluate themselves. And here's what the students said. When, asked, when the men were asked how smart they are in relation to the other students in the class, men consistently rated themselves as more intelligent than a majority of the class, even when they knew their grades said otherwise. Sound about right to any other guys in the room? This is coming from the guy who got in such a long argument with his teacher that when she said, well, the textbook says this, my comeback was, well, then the book is wrong. Because, you know, clearly I have to be right. So I was watching a show on Netflix. There's um, 
it's called Ainsley Eats the Streets. I don't know if any of you do. It's like this famous chef who goes to different countries, and he eats the street food out of the stalls that are, and it's just, a, it's a great show. I love learning about the different cultures. When he went to Japan, he went through, and there were some stalls serving puffer fish. You ever seen a puffer fish before? They're so cute. They're so fluffy. I don't know why anybody would want to eat a puffer fish. For one thing, they're so cute. Why would you want to eat that? But here's the other thing, and you may know this as well. Puffer fish are some of the most deadly animals on the planet. And uh, there's a toxin that is in a puffer fish that keeps them from being eaten by other fish and sharks and everything. But the toxin is incredibly toxic to humans as well. It's something like, what is it, 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide? There's enough toxin in one puffer fish to kill something like 30 adult humans. And we eat this. In Japan, at least, we eat this. It has to be prepared by a very good chef who's very skillful, who knows to take out the poison. The guy in the show I was watching, Ainsley, he just took a hard pass. He's like, no, thank you. <laughs> there is no food worth my life. But this is what happens. You know, when, like pufferfish, we puff ourselves up with pride and arrogance. And this arrogance can be toxic to friendships and marriages and work relationships. It can be toxic to churches. Just when we just get that point where it's all about me. And so I just think Uzziah, 2,700 years ago, 2,600 years ago, me, you know, here in 2018, you, I care about you. I just want to, how do we avoid this? How do we not find ourselves falling due to pride? I think that maybe one of the keys here is I wish that Uzziah had paid more attention to something else in the Proverbs. This is Proverbs 29, 23. Go ahead and look at the screens. Pride ends in humiliation. But humility brings, uh, yeah, we're starting to think about what is the other side of pride. We're talking about humility. What it's saying here in this proverb is that the only antidote to protect you from pride is humility. To embrace this life-giving virtue of, it's really the antithesis. I love what John Stott, he was a British Bible scholar, he, he once said this, pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. You need to embrace this. Something that Jesus' uh, half-brother, James, once taught, and it got written down in the Bible in the book of James. You can look this up. It's in James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, God gives grace generously. And as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I think, for me, and I probably am speaking for all of you, I would like God to pour his grace out of my life, wouldn't you? Would you like God to just say, here, let me give you something that you don't deserve. You didn't earn it. There's nothing that you did that makes me go, okay, you, you get this today. I'm just going to give it to you because I love you. That's what grace is. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to forgive you of your sins. I'm going to give you power to do the right thing. I would love to have God's grace in my life, and I know you would too. And I don't want the opposite of what this says because... This verse says, if you get so arrogant and so full of yourself and so certain that everything that's good in your life came from you and your hard work and your commitment and everything else, when you get to that point, it says not only will God not give you his grace, what will he do? He will oppose you. Who's going to win that contest? It's you and God. You're going to make it out of the first round? I don't want God opposing me. I want God to be giving me grace that I don't deserve, and even in the times when I fail. This is what God does for people who humble themselves, admit, I don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all together. It's time for me to take my hands off 10 and 2 of the steering wheel of my life and start asking somebody like God for help. Obviously, this is the go-to attitude in life, humility. And it's actually, you know, this life-giving virtue that so many people have a hard time finding. 
And it's, here's the crazy thing about humility, and you maybe can kind of reason this out. You ever tried to be humble? Yeah, good luck with that. The moment you try to say, oh, I'm just so humble, it just gets really awkward for everybody. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. And then when you start really going, I think I'm getting a handle on this humble thing, you've just moved into pride again. Like, I'm more humble than you are. I'm humble. <laughs> yeah, it's, you're all the way back to pride again. So how do you get to, to humility? What does it look like? Let me give you a couple of verses. They're on your uh, worship folder as well. They'll be on the screen. It says in Philippians chapter 2, this was uh, written to Christians. So if you're a Christian, this is for you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, read this with me, value others better than yourselves. That's humility right there in a nutshell. Value others better than yourselves. You go like, should I have a like, low self-esteem? Like, oh, I'm nothing, don't look at me. Everybody else is better than me. No. I like how Pastor Andy Stanley describes this. When you're considering other people as better than yourselves, it's just, it means that you're going to take a deferential attitude that says, in some context, I'm just going to go ahead and treat you as though you're better than me. We're not. We're all on the same level playing field, but I like his analogy. Uh, you've ever been in a place where you're not the most important person in the room, you know what this is like. If you've ever been to a wedding and you weren't the bride or the groom, you know what it's like to not be the most important person in the room. And unless you're just incredibly oblivious and rude, you would never be offended that people didn't pay enough attention to you at a wedding when you're not the bride or the groom, right? Because in that context, not in the whole big scheme of things, but you know in that time, I'm going to defer to them. I'm going to treat them with respect and honor for this time. That's all humility does. It says, I'm going to treat you as though you are better than me so that I don't get arrogant and then assume that I'm better than you. It's another great verse. The same guy who wrote the Philippians verse wrote this. This is in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Uh, His advice was, don't think better than you really are. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. You you don't want to think too highly of yourselves because that's pride. You don't want to think too lowly of yourselves because that's almost like a reverse pride. You're almost taking pride in how bad you are. You don't want to do that. Um, You just need to think about yourself in the way that God thinks of you. To realize that God loves you in spite of what you've done. To realize that God uh, is for you and not against you. To realize that when you commit to his son, Jesus Christ, that he adopts you into his family and you are literally a child of God, a brother or sister to Jesus, that you are destined for glory. Just to evaluate yourself in light of what God says about you. All right, I got to wrap this up. How do we make the jump from pride to humility? I, want, I told you every week I want to give you something practical. Let's talk about that. Because the series like this could get discouraging and dark really fast. And I don't want that. I don't want you to feel like you've just been punched in the face repeatedly for the last 30 minutes. That's not what my goal is. I, uh, I don't want you just to figure out what's wrong with you. I want you to figure out how to get better. And God can help you with that. And this is me point to one thing. If you want to move from pride to humility, I, I'm, I don't think it's going to be easy. There's not like a pill I can tell you to take. But... Uh, I think that if you want to find the antidote, it's in the healthy attitude of worship. Do you remember when I was started talking about how pride pushes God off the podium and puts yourself in that place? Worship moves out of the way and allows God to be in the central part of your life again. When we come and we gather and we sing songs like what uh, Matt and Jeff led us in this morning, we're verbalizing, God, you are the greatest. You are the one that I can submit my life to. I am not the most important person in the room, and I need your help. 
When we share communion together, we're acknowledging our unity, but we're also acknowledging our brokenness because when we share communion, we're remembering that Jesus had to die for my sins, the things that I've done wrong. And so just the simple act of confessing your sins to God and maybe to somebody else is incredibly humbling. That's what we do when we worship. So, you know, I just, we just read out of Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Let's go ahead and go back to Romans 12, 1. It says, So, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God for all he's done to you, for you. And, and let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind that God will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. You worship God by doing what we're doing here, but you also worship every day. When you go to work and you pray right before you work, God, I'm going to work with the hardest I can for you. God, I acknowledge that I'm good at what I do at work, and I know that's a gift from you. God, when I get my paycheck, I realize that I worked hard for it, but I couldn't have worked if you hadn't given me the ability, if you hadn't given me the job. And to acknowledge God in everything, when you are parenting and you have those rare moments where you feel like you actually connected with your kid and said something wise and they accepted it, okay, I'm going to acknowledge that some of that was me, but God, thank you for giving me the right words and thank you for opening my child's heart to hear it. Just any context of your life, when you give God credit, you're worshiping, and that's what he wants, to just simply be mindful of him and get your eyes off yourself and just to look to him. And we see things how, things how they really are when we do that. So I, uh, back in 1996, and let's go back to Everest real quick. There's an expedition up on Everest that went horribly wrong. A lot of you know about it because it was made famous by the, the book and the movie Into Thin Air. John Krakauer wrote that book. There were a lot of famous people who died on Everest in one bad storm one night. One of the guys who was up there who didn't die was a surgeon named Beck Weathers. Some of you who are older might remember seeing pictures of him. I'm not going to show you the worst pictures of what actually happened after he came off Everest. He got caught in a storm one night, the same one that killed a bunch of other people. And he was in his tent after somebody had found him and brought him in. He was frostbit all across his hands, his face, his feet. And he was in the tent, and he had no idea where he was. And all of a sudden, the people in the tent with him said, he just got this look on his face, and he said, I've got this figured out. And he ran out of the tent into the night. As far as they knew, he'd run right off the edge of an abyss. They found him the next day, and they found him in this condition. They were able to get him down low enough to get a helicopter up to air rescue him out. This picture, I know you're going to say, this doesn't look like the Beckweathers I saw, because after that, due to frostbite, he lost his hands, he lost his cheeks, he lost his nose, because he had it all figured out. That's what pride does to us. It wrongly convinces you and me, I've got this figured out. It may be bad, but I'll work it out. I just need to give me a little time, give me a little space. You guys just back off. I've got this. The wisest thing you could do is this morning just to humble yourself before God and say, God, I don't got this. I don't got this figured out. I need you. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. Maybe for you, it's even taking a step more than that. While I'm praying, maybe you need to have a conversation with God, but maybe as we're singing our song here after this message, you need to just come up and talk to somebody. You know, every week, you, you head over here, even after services, and just say to somebody, will you just pray with me? And here's, you don't even have to tell them why. There'll be some elders over here. I'll stand over there. If you're ready to commit yourself to Jesus and humble yourself to be baptized, we can do that. We're ready for you anytime. The water's warm. We've got the towels. You're ready. We're ready. But will you just simply start to open up your mind to what God is trying to tell you right now? Maybe today could be the thing, time when things really change for you as you move from pride to humility.